0: The sixth annual Palswood Garden Storytelling Festival featured renowned storyteller Donald Davis. Here's a full session of his stories. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recordings. My name is Pat Peterson. I'm your MC this morning. I am so happy to have you here at the sixth annual Palswood Storytelling Festival. I first heard Donald Davis back in nineteen eighty-five at the National Storytelling Festival. I had never really spent time in the South before. Tennessee. And and I sat there, and he started telling a story, and I found myself leaning into the story. Somebody asked me, what kind of a storyteller is Donald Davis? I said, I think he's like a front porch storyteller. Somebody who sits there and shares memories of his past, of his family, of where he grew up, and it doesn't matter where we are from or how old we are, we can all relate. So I invite you all on this beautiful morning on our front porch to please help me in welcoming Donald Davis.
1: Oh, thank you. It's so very nice to be here. If you have a cell phone, don't turn it off. Text somebody and tell them to come. Yeah. Tell them to be here. If you have an airplane, turn it off. Yeah. yeah. But the airplanes fly over to remind us that this is the real world, and that's the world we've made. So isn't it nice to be back here in the real world, to have some stories, such a lovely, beautiful place. When I was uh, five years old, well, we we didn't have kindergarten when I was five years old. But instead of being able to stay home and play, my mother sent me to Mrs. Rosemary's Kindergarten in the basement of the Methodist Church. Every morning while my dad was getting ready to go work at the bank, I would get ready to go to kindergarten. I'd get all ready, get in the car with my daddy. We would drive into town, drive up to the 1923 church. We would get out of the car, and he would take me up to the top of the steps, and he would make the bump. And I would kiss the bump goodbye. And then he would turn me around, and I would go down six little steps, and for the rest of the day, I belonged to Mrs. Rosemary. Mrs. Rosemary was a woman of um, indeterminate age who told us that if we measured her, we would find out she was exactly the same distance around all the way up and down from top to bottom. She said, it's easier to get dressed that way because you close fit no matter how you put them on, front to back, back to front, you yep. She had these rimless glasses with little gold, little gold earpieces and, and her hair. Her hair looked like an old-fashioned bathing cap that had little curls just glued all over it. <laughs> we just knew she could go home in the afternoon and pull her hair off and you know, just wash it out and hang it up on the bedpost, let it dry out, put it back on the next day. Now, Mrs. Rosemary could have taught Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Because you see, they both knew that the only way you keep up with a five-year-old is not by speeding up, but by teaching the whole world how to slow down. No matter what we ever started in kindergarten, we did it as long as we wanted to. Why not? It was kindergarten. Every Monday was a holiday. We started right in and had Labor Day. The next Monday, we had Halloween. The Monday after that was Thanksgiving. Last Monday in September, Christmas. By the time we got to December, we had finished all the holidays. She just turned the calendar around and we started all over again. We had every holiday at least three times that year. Why not? It was kindergarten. (laughs) Every Friday was somebody's birthday. When we came to Friday, somebody turned six years old. There was a little plaster of Paris birthday cake that you could fit candles in, and we'd have fresh candles every Friday. We'd celebrate another birthday. By, by, By December, everybody was six years old. We just started over again. By, by Easter, everybody was seven years old. By the time I got out of kindergarten, I was eight years old. Best year of birthdays I ever had. Why not? It was kindergarten. Yeah. Now, every day, my favorite thing, I would listen and listen and listen and listen and listen and listen for these magic words. Rhythm band. Because if you got your hand up in a hurry, you might get to play the one little loose-headed drum. The one little triangle, or this one magical thing that was called the whip. It would be illegal today, but it sure was fun. (laughs) It was two thin strips of board that had a hinge at the bottom and handles on the outside. You would open it up and you would smack it together and it would make a crack that sounded like the building was coming down. If you were slow getting your hands up, you got stuck with the wood blocks. <laughs> Stupid little blocks of wood had, had sandpaper glued to them. They weren't worth anything. I used to think my wood blocks were no good because the sandpaper was worn out Till I got some of brand new sandpaper. They weren't any better. Well, then we'd all line up, and she would pick somebody to be the leader. The leader got to carry the baton, which was actually a piece of a broomstick that had glitter glued to it and a rubber ball on each end so you couldn't jab somebody's eye out with it. (laughs) And then following the leader, here we'd march, playing our music around the church, around the block, around the church, Around the block as long as we wanted to. Now, there was one bad boy in kindergarten, Bobby Jensen. He was so bad. Bobby Jensen could spend an hour moving at the speed of the shorthand on the clock to get in exactly the right place to see a girl's underwear. (laughs) He was so bad. One day we got to kindergarten and we were playing outside. It had rained the night before, so all the sand in the sandbox was wet and it would stick together. And I spent the whole morning making a perfect little row of matched frog houses. When just as I got it finished, along came Bobby Jensen. Accident, 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 he said. (laughs) And I went to tell on him. Mrs. Rosemary wouldn't listen. She got out two chairs. She put me in one chair. She put Bobby Jensen in the other chair, and she scooted us up till our knees touched. She said, boys, let me tell you something. When you have something important to say to someone, you don't send a messenger. You tell them straight out yourself. And she made me talk to that bad boy. (laughs) I never did like that. (laughs) Now, in North Carolina, by the time you get to October, the first big full week of October is State Fair Week. When that week came along, Mrs. Rosemary told us we were going to have the State Fair in kindergarten. Monday was Pie Day. We spent all day making mud pies and baking them in the church ovens. (laughs) We did things all through the week, but the big news was Friday was going to be livestock day. (laughs) On Friday, we were supposed to bring all of our pets and any other animals we wanted to bring, and we would have a big livestock parade, and we would get ribbons, you know, red ribbons and blue ribbons and and all kinds of ribbons, and and, and I was upset because the only pet I had was a dead goldfish, (laughs) and it was buried in the nasturtiums, and I thought I won't even be able to find it by Friday, and it won't win either. But my daddy heard about the plan, and he told my mother to take me to the Bergen's Dairy Barn and let me get a kitten. And that next afternoon, we went over to the Bergen's Dairy Barn, and we spent about two hours interviewing candidates. (laughs) And then we went home with Judy. Judy was warm. That was the first thing you knew about Judy. As soon as you touched Judy, Judy was warm. And and Judy was soft. And, and, And she was white and orange and black. And she had a little tail that looked like what's left of a pencil when it won't reach in the pencil sharpener far enough to sharpen anymore. And I took Judy home. And the next day, Judy went to Livestock Day. And Judy won the blue ribbon for the newest pet. <laughs> I, I thought she might win the smartest pet, you know, ribbon too, but but Tommy Connor brought a big worm and it won that one. <laughs> Well, that Sunday afternoon, after Sunday dinner, we got in the car to go to my grandmother's house. We always went on Sunday afternoon. My daddy started the Plymouth. He let out the clutch. All of a sudden, something under the car went, ba-bam. And my daddy stopped. And Judy ran out from under the car and fell over. And her little legs were running in the air. And by the time we got there, her legs stopped. And she breathed her last little breath. And instead of a trip to my grandmother's house, we had a cat funeral. I tried to talk to my parents about it, but they couldn't help because they were parents. And they said foolish things like, it was only a kitten. And even worse than that, you could always get another one. And I had to go back to kindergarten on Monday and tell Mrs. Rosemary that my blue ribbon kitten died for no reason. She gathered us up and she said, Now, boys and girls, let's come and sit down on our talking rug. And we all got down on the floor and she said, Now, let's talk. All of us know that sometimes things die. But let me tell you children something nothing ever dies for no reason. If something dies, it either means it got too hurt to get well, or it got too sick to get well, or if it was oh so lucky, it just got too old to be well. Five years old, that took care of me. She had given me an answer instead of ignoring me. My kitten just got too hurt to get well. Well, Mrs. Rosemary's assistant was Mr. Rosemary. (laughs) He was an old, tall, completely bald-headed man, no hair anywhere around his ears or anywhere else. We were scared of Mr. Rosemary. Mr. Rosemary had a hole in his throat through which he breathed. He wore a little bib that was supposed to cover it up, but when he would bend over, we could see it, and we did. And he had a little speaking tube he talked with. One end went in his mouth, the other end against the side of his throat, and when he talked, it sounded like a robot. One day he came to school, and he and Mrs. Rosemary were over in the corner of the room speaking robot talk. And we were all huddled down in the other end of the room, and and finally he left, and she said, oh, boys and girls, you're not afraid of Mr. Rosemary, are you? She said, boys and girls, it's okay. Mr. Rosemary was gassed in the war, and he only has one lung. And then she said, if you're afraid of him, just wait till tomorrow. (laughs) I didn't sleep at all that night. Well, the next day we got to kindergarten. In came Mrs. Rosemary. In came Mr. Rosemary. They both got us down in the floor, and we all took turns finger painting Mr. Rosemary's bald head. And while some of us were finger-painting his bald head, the rest of us got to play with the speaking tube to see if we could sound like robots. <laughs> we were never scared of him again. <laughs> Mr. Rosemary had retired from the Pet Dairy Company, where he told us he had been the chief ice cream mixer. And that now that he was retired, he had a little workshop at their house, and that's where he made all of our wonderful toys for kindergarten. Mr. Rosemary made our sandbox. It was a two-story sandbox. On the ground level, there was sand and then little circular stairs that went up to a second story that in a moment of imagination could be the top of a castle or, or, or or the bridge on a ship. Mr. Rosemary made huge, big, wooden boxes that were painted like giant blocks that we would stack up and learn to balance things with. Mr. Rosemary had flattened pots, to, pot lids to make symbols for the rhythm band. He made the whip. He made all kinds of things. We, we, we didn't have one single thing that had been bought at a store. Mr. Rosemary made all of. Well, one day we got to kindergarten, and in came Mrs. Rosemary, and with her was a tall woman she introduced to us as Mrs. Hale. She said, boys and girls, this is Mrs. Hale. She's going to be your teacher for four days. I have to be gone for four days, boys and girls, because last night Mr. Rosemary died. Anybody else would have sent a messenger, but that would have broken her rule. She had to tell us straight out herself. We got down in the talking circle. She even made Mrs. Hale get down there, I think just to see if she could do it. <laughs> and she said, Now, boys and girls, we mustn't be frightened about this. Remember, Mr. Rosemary's one lung. And remember, nobody dies for no reason. If somebody dies, it means they either got too hurt to get well, or they got too sick to get well, or if they were oh so lucky, they just got too old to be well. Mr. Rosemary just got too old to be well. And with a little tear and a kiss for each of us, she told us goodbye, and we saw her next four days later. On one of those days, something was happening up in the big church. We always knew when something was happening up there because the big pump that ran the pipe organ was down in the kindergarten room. It would come on and go, what's happening up there? And Mrs. Hale told us that while we were playing in kindergarten, they were having Mr. Rosemary's funeral. And I thought, I wish we had known the rhythm band could have played. (laughs) But we didn't know, and I am totally sure that Mrs. Rosemary just didn't think about it. (laughs) Well, we missed Mr. Rosemary terribly because, see, he had been our driver for our every Thursday field trips. When he had retired from Pet Dairy Company, he either bought or he just kept. My daddy said he probably just kept it. It was a 1941 Chevy panel truck. It had one little seat for the driver, no windows on the side. In very faded, faded, faded red letters, you could barely read PET, Pet, pet Dairy on the side. He would come driving up to kindergarten on Thursday. We'd all go out the door that opened the back. We didn't pay a lot of attention to child safety back then. They'd just throw all of us in the back, and, and, you know, we were packed in so tightly, we couldn't get hurt. We were just stamped in there like we were all belted in, and, and then Mrs. Rosemary would ride backwards in the front, sitting on an upside-down milk crate, directing songs. We would sing and sing and sing while we went all over town, the same places, over and over again, learning about where we lived and meeting the people who took care of us. We would go to the fire department, and we'd meet Chief Clem Fitzgerald, and he would let us slide down a pole from upstairs and climb on the one fire truck that didn't work anymore, but they still kept it just so kids could climb on it. We'd go to the post office and meet Mr. Lonnie Bishop, the postmaster, and watch him lose mail we go to the National Guard Armory where the tank company was stationed and we'd climb on the tanks and a man named Colonel Griswold would come out and he'd say, those children are going to get dirty. And Mrs. Rosemary would say, those children came dirty. <laughs> and we'd just keep climbing. You know. We'd go to the bank where my daddy worked and we'd go inside and he would say, do your children want to see where we keep the money Of course we did. He would take us back in the big vault, back past the safe deposit boxes to where there were bars in the back, and we'd look through the bars, and he would show us sacks that had coins and flat canvas cases with currency. And while we were looking, he and Mrs. Rosemare would sneak out the door, lock us in, and turn (laughs) off the lights. And we'd scream and 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 and laugh and laugh and laugh. And then he'd let us out and he'd say, that's what we do to every robber who comes in my bank. So you better not be one. There was never a robbery there. My daddy and Ms. Rosemary scared it out of everybody we'd go to Pet Dairy Company where Mr. Rosemary had worked, and we'd go back in the big walk-in ice cream freezer and see how long we could stay there till we were almost frozen, and then we'd run outside where it was warm and look back and hope that Bobby Jensen didn't make it. (coughs) And we'd watch the milk bottles go through the machine that put the caps on so fast you couldn't see it happen. It was like magic and we just, our eyes wouldn't move as fast as the machine moved. Some days we would go to the Rosemary's house. As soon as we got to the Rosemary's house, the very first time, I knew they were wealthy. Because they had something nobody else in town had. Right there in the yard of their house, Under the shade of big hemlock trees, right in the ground, they had this beautiful goldfish pond. I could not imagine how much that must have cost. It was so expensive, they didn't have enough money left to build a very big house. (laughs) It seems that that most of the days we would go there would be days when, when their daughter, their daughter Ernestine was in high school, It would be days when, for some reason, Ernestine was at home. And we'd play through the woods with her. We'd gather up moss and make little terrarium models. We'd pick ferns. Oh, I remember one magical day when we got to help Ernestine add more water to the goldfish pond. I forgot about that day for 30 years until one day I was watching our boys watch Mr. Rogers. The program on Mr. Rogers that day was Mr. Rogers Fills a Bathtub. He spent five minutes changing shoes. And then it was, let's turn the water on, boys and girls. It's coming out now, boys and girls. This is the stopper. Can you say, stopper? (laughs) Twenty minutes later, it's almost full now. They'd been hypnotized the whole time. (laughs) And then I remembered that day when we had waited in line to get our chance at the front. To fill one little pan of water, dump it in the goldfish pond, go to the end of the line and start waiting again. <laughs> and I can't remember being bored with a single moment of it. You know. Well, finally, kindergarten came to an end, and the next year we had to go to real school. You know, real school where you have a time limit every time you start something? and where you just get one birthday, and where you only get to mention the holidays that the present school board wants to to have. And I began to forget about kindergarten. But once in a while, my mother would come home from the grocery store, and she would say, oh, I saw Mrs. Rosemary at the store today, and she asked about you. And it kept on all the way through primary, elementary school. I saw Mrs. Rosemary at the beauty parlor. She asked about you. Junior high school, I saw Mrs. Rosemary at a church meeting. She, I, I couldn't get away from that woman by being graduated from high school and going off to college. <laughs> Every trip home, sooner or later, I saw Mrs. Rose. You know, she always asks about you. Until years later on a trip home, the question never came. And then after a day or two, all of a sudden, my mother said, oh, remember Mrs. Rosemary, your old kindergarten teacher? I thought, how can I forget her? She won't quit asking about me. (laughs) My mother said, Mrs. Rosemary died. Remember Ernestine, her daughter? Ernestine came back home and lived with her mother about for the last six months. I saw Ernestine at the grocery store. And she asked about you. (laughs) And do you know before an hour had passed, I found myself in the car driving toward the Rosemary's house, I had to go see Ernestine. I pulled in the driveway. Right there was the goldfish pond. And I knew swimming around there were the great, 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 great grandchildren of the goldfish that we had fed and added water for. There was Mr. Rosemary's little workshop on the end of the garage, and I could still imagine that in some world he was in there flattening pot lids to make cymbals for more rhythm bands. I got out of the car. She must have heard the car come in because before I got to the steps, the door opened, and there on the porch came right out the very image of of my old kindergarten teacher, (laughs) just like her mother. Same size all the way up and down. Same bathing cap hair. She said, oh, Donald Davis, come in, come in. I'm so glad to see you. I'm going through some of mother's things. There's one thing I must show you. And we went inside, and she took me to the kitchen table and and, and had me sit down there. And then she went over to this long set of shelves under a huge window. The shelves looked like they were filled with notebook binders. But when she found the one she was looking for and pulled it out, then I could see they were homemade photograph albums. She carried one over to the table and put it down, and there on the front it said, my Hopes and Dreams, 1949. I remember the Rosemary's had always taken lots of pictures with a little, a little brownie, brownie box camera, but I'd never seen any of those pictures. But we opened the front, and there we were, right back in kindergarten. On the left side of every page, pictures, pictures, pictures pictures. There we were in the rhythm band. There we were in the sandbox. There we were sitting on the hood of of the little Chevy in front of Pet Dairy Company eating Dixie cups of ice cream with little flat wooden spoons. There we were running all over the yard at the Rosemary's house. And on the right hand side of every single page layers and layers and layers carefully clipped and neatly taped in place newspaper clippings where Mrs. Rosemary had followed the lives of every one of her hopes and dreams as far as the newspaper had. I read right there about when I made all A's in the third grade I read about being in the junior high school band. I read about the Latin Club banquet in high school when we had our picture in there wearing togas that looked like Ku Klux Klan robes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just all bed sheets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I read about graduating from high school and going off to college. We looked all the way through, and we read about everybody's lives, and there on the last page, there was a big newspaper clipping of Bobby Jensen (laughs) in a Marine uniform. I said, that Bobby Jensen was a bad boy. She said, oh, Mother was always so proud of that picture. She said when she got Bobby Jensen, he was the only true crybaby she ever had. And we closed the book. I said, Ernestine, I think finally today after all these years, I think today I met your mother. And now that I've really met her, now I miss her. I know you do too. Ernestine looked at me, and she said, well, of course I do, but it's okay. She said, you see, you were probably too little for mother to ever tell you this, but she always used to tell me that nobody ever died for no reason. (laughs) She would tell me that if somebody died, it meant they either got too hurt to get well or they got too sick to get well or if they were, oh, so lucky, they just got too old to be well. And then as she pointed to those long shelves, reminding both of us that her mother had more than 40 years of hopes and dreams to follow, she said, I think we were all very lucky because Mama got to live be just too old to be well. <clears throat> I'll tell you a tiny story behind the story about how the this, this story came together. Uh, I was uh, doing a, an event at the Smithsonian. Uh, It was in the auditorium under American History. Uh, It was a teacher teacher conference event. And when it was over, everybody was leaving, and all of a sudden somebody was coming down the aisle toward me. And it looked like Mrs. Rosemary. (laughs) And it was Ernestine, who grew up and spent her life teaching Spanish and Portuguese at Mary Washington College. And she had read in the paper that I was going to be there, and she had come. And under her arm, she had the photograph album. And we sat down on the edge of that stage, and we looked at the photograph album. And and she said, remember when you came to see me when Mother died? And we talked about the reasons Mother. And that was when the idea for putting the whole story together started and then it was a matter of going back and 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 rethinking kindergarten and remembering once I began to do that day after, day after day after day after day after day and the story finally came together totally the way you heard it today. If I had not met her on that later time I, I might n- have never backed up and put the whole story together. So I was glad we were there then. Yeah, thank you. No, no. Uh, My father raised five of his own little brothers and sisters because when my dad was 19, their father died. There were older siblings, but the older ones were already married and gone off into their own lives. And my dad at 19 was the oldest one who hadn't left home yet, so he inherited five brothers and sisters, a mother, an unmarried aunt in 1920 before Social Security, before life insurance, and he spent 20 years raising them. So by the time he and my mother got married, he was ready to be a grandfather. And, and he had very interesting ways of, 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 of discipline because his discipline was much more mature than it would have been with a younger parent. Uh, if I committed a misdemeanor, there would be a tiny little hint of a spanking. You know, mostly uh, being scared that you were going to get it and that it was over. There would be forgotten in about five minutes. But if you committed a felony, (laughs) he would act like he didn't know about it. And you'd start worrying. (laughs) Does he know what I did or not? When's he going to say something about it? Is he just waiting up to kill me in a special way. You know? <laughs> and you'd worry and worry and worry and worry. And then finally you get to where you start thinking, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know. And about the time you decide, I think he really doesn't know, all of a sudden you would hear these terrible words. Let me tell you a little story. You, oh, just beat me! Don't tell me a little story. No, just, just no, 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 no. Well, I want to tell you about one of those occasions. Uh, you know, growing up, your your friends in a little town are kind of the children of your parents' friends. Uh, and, and the values are all sort of the same. We, we went to the Methodist Church every single Sunday. My grandfather had been in the North Carolina Senate. This is just family history. In 1909, he had introduced prohibition to North Carolina, way before the Volstead Act. Now, I'm not proud of that. That's just family history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up with absolutely no awareness in this world of alcohol, none. And my friends grew up the same way. So when we went off to college, we had a lot to catch up on. (laughs) Now, in those days in North Carolina, drinking age was 18. It hadn't been raised to 21. So this was legal. There was nothing illegal about it. You need to understand that. And about two weeks after I was at college, one Saturday, some of the guys I'd met said, let's go into town and and get pizza tonight. And we went into Charlotte, and we went to a place, and we got pizza, and we ordered. Ah, it was a big bottle. I knew nothing about this of New York Burgundy wine. Yeah. And I drank it. And probably maybe one more time in that whole semester, we did that again. Well, I got home for Christmas. I met my two best buddies, my three best buddies, actually, David and Doug and Bill. And as we were talking, we discovered that the four of us going to four different schools in one short semester had become consummate wine experts. (laughs) And so there was nothing for us to do to complete our wonderful Christmas holidays, but to have a wine party. Now, the first problem was, where are we going to have it? Because, you know, my house certainly wouldn't work. David's wouldn't work. Doug's wouldn't work. But Bill, Bill was an orphan who lived with his older half-sister who was not married. And she worked the night shift at the bowling alley. Which meant from about 10.30 at night till about 7.30 in the morning, she was gone. So now we had a place. Then we needed a plan. The plan was going to be, and this was not unusual at all, we were going to just spend the night with Bill. Our parents were used to that. That wasn't unusual. They never even questioned it. The whole plan was we would take my mother's car, we would drive to Asheville, which was 27 miles away. We would go to a movie And then so we just wouldn't disturb our parents by coming home late. We were just going to go to Bill's house and spend the night. So the plan was made about halfway between Christmas and New Year's. Well, we headed over to Asheville, and we went to a 7 o'clock movie, and we got out almost 9 o'clock. And at 9 o'clock in Asheville, North Carolina, in 1962, we began looking for a place that was still open, the sold fine wine. We found one. It was called 7-11. And they had really good wine. They had modern wine. It wasn't the old kind that had corks in it. This was modern wine. You could screw the lids right off. You didn't have to pull corks out of it, you know? And they had several different kinds, but they had one that was 10 cents more than the other kinds. It, the bottles were kind of round at the bottom, and they had sort of a little woven basket that came up over the bottle, up to the top. It was called Chianti. Oh. Now, we didn't know how much to get until David said, he said, you know, when, when my Uncle Phil goes out to buy beer, he gets a six-pack. Well, there were four of us, so we thought, well, that's good. So we bought six bottles of cheap Chianti. We were going to get cheese, too, but 7-Eleven didn't have cheese, so we got white bread and butter. And we headed back to Bill's house to start the big wine party. Now, it it was a warm night. Sometimes there in the mountains of North Carolina around Christmas time, there'll be just a little break in the weather. You know, it's kind of like it's designed so kids could go outside and play with their presents for one day before winter comes back. (laughs) And it was a very warm night when it was raining and, and we had the windows open. And, you know, when I try, I'm stalling a little bit trying to remember it. Because see my memory of that night is kind of like it's kind of like you had a whole box full of color slides and you dropped them and most of them blew away and the ones that didn't blow away you stepped on and they were kind of blurry I have this one picture in my head of, I'm sitting on, I'm sitting on a sofa that's upholstered in green vinyl with this hand watching Jack Parr on late night black and white television while this eye looks down the hallway watching Bill throw up in the toilet. And it just seemed like the most normal thing in the world to sit there and watch. It just went on and on and on. I have another little memory of of our walking out on the porch, all four of us, and we're standing there. Uh, Bill and I have our backs to the wall. David and Doug have their backs to the edge of the porch. And it's pouring rain, and this soft, warm rain is running off the edge of the roof over the edge of the porch. We've discovered that all four of us are taking different foreign languages, and after this one semester, we're standing there and brilliantly conversing with each other in four different foreign languages, and it is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, with their backs toward the edge of the porch, David and Doug leaned back a tiny bit. And Bill and I leaned toward them a tiny bit. And we keep leaning and leaning and leaning till all of a sudden the two of them simply fall right off the porch, land flat on their backs on the ground, and we lean over the edge and we just keep talking in four different foreign languages. Well, the night went on and it went on and it went on. And the fog gradually came down to the ground because it was warm and it was so moist. And they maybe that saved us. Because when we looked out the next morning you couldn't even see from the house to the road. It was just solid. And something inside us knew not to drive in that. And so we all split up to walk home. And I remember walking home on the line in the middle of the road. (laughs) And hoping I was on the right, right, right line going in the right direction, but the fog kept any traffic from coming. I got home, climbed in the window, crawled in bed, and nobody knew about it. Well, the next morning I woke up and discovered that in my sleep I had been sick and rolled in it, and the whole bed was nasty, every, beyond nasty. I could hear my mother messing around in the house. I gathered everything up, all the sheets, all the cover, my pajamas, every possible thing, wadded it up in one wad, and when I heard my mother way in the other end of the house, I ran quickly to the laundry room put it all in the washing machine, and put all kinds of soap in there. And when it started up, purple bubbles were coming up out of the top everywhere. It was just purple foam. And so there was a big glass gallon jug of Clorox, and I poured the whole gallon of Clorox in there, and the sheets disintegrated, and they came all apart in little strips. But all the color was gone. There was no evidence. We got away with it. Now, the next two days were absolutely miserable because I desperately needed to die. And I couldn't. Oh. I, I, I didn't, none of us talked to each other. We couldn't, you know, get to the holes on the dial phone to, you know, make it work and then Then finally, it was on the the night before the 2nd of January, my dad said, oh, I haven't seen the boys for a while. Oh, really? He said, you're all going back to school tomorrow. Why don't you get hold of the boys and invite them to come over, and your mom can make a big pot of spaghetti, and we'll get to say goodbye to everybody before you all go back to school. And I called them up and found out they were indeed all alive. (laughs) And they came that night. And we sat down and we had a nice big meal together. All through that meal, none of us could look at each other. We just studied our utensils. And my dad talked about how we were doing and tried to ask questions. And we went along and then we had dessert and then we'd just kind of sit in there. And he said, Boys, I'm going to miss you. You know, it's kind of nice to have you around here. You know, after all through high school, it's sad. Sad to having you gone. Let me tell you a little story. (laughs) And the story started. My grandfather was always running for public office. He was a farmer back in the mountains, but, but almost all the people who were in politics were farmers in that part of the world. And when my dad was maybe about 10 years old, uh, my, my grandfather was running for the legislature. My dad was born in 1901. And one afternoon, a man came in a Model T Ford all the way out to the farm down the old washed out road to talk to my granddaddy about politics. He and my granddaddy were inside in the kitchen talking, and my daddy and his little brother, Uncle Frank, and his next older brother, Uncle Harry, and his other older brother, Uncle Moody, those four boys who were 8, 9, 10, and 11 years old were exploring and examining the Model T Ford because they'd never been that close to one. And while they were crawling all over it, all around under it, everywhere, everywhere, Uncle Harry discovered stuck under the driver's seat a bottle of homemade whiskey. And they got it out, and they pulled the corn cob out of the top, and they sniffed it and passed it around, and sniffed it and passed it around, and they wondered what it tasted like. what They wouldn't dare touch it. No, they wouldn't dare touch it. No, they wouldn't dare touch it. And then Uncle Frank got an idea. There were chickens all over the yard. And he went over and caught one of the chickens and brought it over and said to Uncle Harry, I'll open its mouth, you give it a little drink. And he got the chicken's beak opened up, and they dribbled a little bit of whiskey in there, and the chicken coughed and spurted and coughed and waved its wings around. They just laughed and laughed and laughed, and they gave it a little more whiskey, and they, they laughed and laughed, and the chicken was all, and they gave it a little more whiskey, and finally the, the chicken got loose, and it flopped down on the ground. It would run and fall over, and it would run and fall over, and the boys were just laughing their heads off. And all of a sudden, my granddaddy and the man he was talking to came out the door. And here was this drunk chicken flopping all over the ground. But my granddaddy had no idea what had happened. He looked at that chicken flopping all around. He said, oh, goodness, boys, look, there's a sick chicken. Oh, boys, I don't want it to make the rest of our chickens sick. Boys, get something and kill that chicken and bury it. And my daddy said, It was a perfectly good chicken. And we needed all our chickens. But what could we do? We couldn't get caught. (laughs) And we had to kill a perfectly good chicken and bury it. He looked up at us and he said, Yeah, boys, chickens drink too much. They're liable to get killed every time. And my mother sat there trying to think, why in the world is he talking to But we knew that he knew and that he'd given us one chance, but we better not try for another one. Some of you know that in my early adult life, I spent 25 years in the local church as a United Methodist pastor. And um, it, being Methodist, you know, the bishop appoints us. And especially in those days, there's much more consultation today. But, but back when I was starting 50 years ago, we often didn't know where we were going till we went to conference center. Your name was read out, and there you were sent out to go to your church. And in 1972. I was sent way back in the mountains north of North Carolina to a new church. And I got into town, and the first day I was there, uh, they were taking me on a little tour of the church, a little tiny town in the mountains. It was a, an old Akron-planned church with the, the pulpit in the corner and the the choir curving behind it, and these long rows of seats, so nobody's really very far from the front, and in the back rooms that could open up and be classrooms, or close up and be classrooms, or open up and be overflow seating. Very, very, very practical plan, used lots of churches built in the 1920s, and as it took me around, all the Sunday school rooms had names, here was the Christie room, and I heard all about the Christie family, and Mr. John Christie was still the church treasurer. He'd been the church treasurer for, for 50 years. And then we came around, and here's the Frank Marr room, and I heard all about Frank Marr and his whole family and that, that classroom. And then we came around, and here's one that was called the Smitherman room. and I heard about the Smitherman family, and then they said, all the Smithermans are gone except Hazel. And there was no more explanation. But when I looked in the door of that room, there was nothing in the room. It was empty. No chairs, no tables, nothing on the wall, no furniture. I said, Well, is that a Sunday school room? They said, Yes, that's the Smitherman class. And I said, Well, why isn't there anything in there? And they said, Because everybody in that class is dead, (laughs) they're all gone. I said, well, why is it still the Smitherman class? They said, you don't understand. You could not take the Smitherman's name off of there. Uh Uh-uh, they would come back and get you. (laughs) And besides, with Hazel still around, once you meet her, you'll find out why. And so I thought, well, I guess I need to meet Hazel before she slips up on me. Well, I asked about her, and they told me that Hazel ran the motel That was the total description I got. That was all it was, the motel. Because down at the end of town, the population was 1,500 people. At the end of town was the motel. Eight rooms, four and four, made out of concrete blocks, and Hazel lived in one of the rooms. And when I got there and got out of the car, uh, there she was. She was sitting on a little deck, and she was smoking a, an unfiltered camel cigarette. And oh, did she smoke. She go, <sighs> like desperation. <sighs> and I sat down, and I thought, she's through with that one. But she turned it up, and she lit the next one off of it, you know, and then flipped it out there. She never stopped all the way through. Well, I met Hazel, and we got acquainted. And uh, we talked a little bit, and I thought, well, she's not as scary as I thought. But I've only met her once. Well, the next day, all of a sudden, I was at the church, and here comes Hazel. She had this great big old Pontiac. And she came up, and she said, I'm glad you're here. I want to show you something. We were way back in the mountains. And, and, and we went outside. She had her cigarette. And we walked all the way around the church building to where a door went into the cellar. And she stood there, and she uh, loaded up on smoke a lot. <sighs> so she'd have enough to hold her while we went in there. And then she'd stand the cigarette up, you know, and it's butt in. So it would be just waiting when she came back out the door. And she says, come on in here. And we went in underneath the church. And you could look up, and there were the beams. And there was, we were looking under, you know, the floor of the sanctuary. And she says, Preacher, see them beams? Them beams was there before you got here. And them beams is going to be there after you're gone. And one thing's for sure, there ain't nothing needs to be changed. You better learn that right now. And we walked out the door, and she picked up her cigarette, and she was gone. Well, when Sunday came, I discovered that Hazel was the piano player for the opening assembly for Sunday school. The way it worked there in that church, that when Sunday school started, everybody of all ages all came into the sanctuary, the children, the adults, everybody. They sang two or three songs. They took up the offering while adults could still give money to the kids. You know, we found out who had died and if anybody had a birthday, and then people split off and went off into their age-level classes. And Hazel played the piano for those two or three songs at the beginning. She played all the keys all (laughs) over everywhere. And that first Sunday when she came, she brought in with her a big vase of flowers that she put up on top of the upright piano. And she started playing. I found out later, she told me, she only played songs in two flats. So we sang like dwelling in Beulah Land about once a month because it was in B-flat. And then we'd sing, you know, the rock that is high, it's in B-flat. That's all we sang was in B-flat. Well, when she started playing the piano, there must have been a tiny little slope in the floor because the flowers started sliding down toward this end. And they kept going. I thought, they're going to fall off. They're going to fall off. And she's still going all over the place. And here go the flowers dancing down through there. And just as the flowers got to the end, we got to the end of the verse. And like a typist, she reached there and goes, Shook! And said, keep going, 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 all the way through there. And all the way through. And he goes, shunk and there we go, all the way through. Yeah. Well, as soon as, the, as, soon as that was over, as soon as the sun was was over, she got up, got in her car and left she didn't come to church. She had quit coming to church. And it took me a while to finally get up my nerve to ask her about why she came to Sunday school and she didn't come to church. And she said, change. I said, what do you mean change? She said, they bought that Oregon And it took me two or three times to discover she was not talking about a state. It was a musical instrument. There wasn't anything wrong with the piano. And they bought that Oregon. And so she wasn't coming back to church anymore because it didn't need to be changed. And I was getting a pretty constant message here. Well, time rolled along, and I I was the youngest minister who had been there for about 40 years, and we had actually had three children, and all of a sudden we started getting a whole lot more kids in the church and a lot more youth in the church because we were doing a lot of stuff. And, and what happened was right above the church was the school, the elementary school. Most of the parents worked either at Baker Furniture or at American Thread, and school would get out a little bit before they got off. And what the kids would do is they would come down to the church and they would hang out there and do their homework till their parents came and got them to go home. Neat thing. But we needed a space that was really theirs. And at a meeting, they started talking about it and started talking about it. We need a space for these kids. We need a place where, you know, they can bring some old furniture, where they can fix it up. It could just be their room. You know, they come and they do their homework, and then they come back on Sunday night. If we just had an extra room, and all of a sudden somebody said, how about the Smitherman room? Everybody in there is dead. Why don't we give them that room and let them fix it up the way they want to? And somebody else said, we'll have to ask Hazel. And then somebody else said, the preacher will ask her. (laughs) And I set out to go on my task. And I thought, this is going to go absolutely nowhere. Let me go down there and get it over with, and I'll come back and make the report. And I went down to see Hazel, and we sat down and she's smoking camel cigarettes. And I said, Hazel, there's something serious I need to talk to you about. I said, you know, we've got a lot more children coming to church, and we've got a lot more youth coming than we used to have. She says, I've heard about that and they like to hang out there, and they like to come back on Sunday nights, and, and we'd like to just have a space for them. It'd be nice if we had a room where they could just bring some old furniture, and maybe they could put up the kind of pictures they like, and, and they, could, they could paint it maybe the way they wanted to. And, and she said, well, that'd be a good idea if those children want to hang around the church. That'd be a good idea. I said, well, what we've been thinking about It's maybe, well, maybe they could have the Smithman room. They could paint up the way they want to. What What do you think about that? Well, the way she started every sentence, I haven't told you this. You know, most of us start a sentence with a capital letter, even with their voices, but not Hazel. Hazel started every sentence like this. Well, hell... She took a big drag on the cigarette, and she says, well, hell, you know, if those children want to hang around at the church, as far as I'm concerned, they can paint that room as striped as a zebra if they want to, and I'll pay for the paint. I'd come up there and help them paint, except they won't let me smoke in the church anymore. She looked at me and she says, Preacher, there's something you need to learn. If you're gonna get along in this world, you're gonna have to learn how to change. (laughs) My name is Larry Holm and I'm on the board of the Seattle Storytellers Guild. Many of you have already had the pleasure of listening to Donald Davis tell stories earlier today. He is an amazing storyteller. He was born in, in uh, Southern Appalachia into a world full of stories. He heard many traditional stories when he was growing up and was especially drawn to stories about his own family and his places of origin. He's won the, uh, the Circle of Excellence Award and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Storytelling Network.
0: Please help me give a warm welcome to Donald Davis.
1: Oh, thank you, thanks. Can, 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 can you still remember the very first day you ever went to school? Can you see the place? See, I'll never forget that day. I was really dumb back then. I thought I wanted to go to school. You know, this was back when the world ran the way it was supposed to, and school started on the day after Labor Day. So I got up that morning, put my clothes on, came in the kitchen for breakfast, and my mother looked at me and she said, you can't wear that. I said, why not? She said, because today's the first day of school and I got new clothes for you. And she sent me back in my room with this bag full of stuff I had never seen before and made me start all over. The first thing that came out of that bag was this stiff as a board, folded up, unfaded pair of blue jeans. I tried to unfold them. They just folded back up. My mother said, give them to me. She got hold of those blue jeans. She took the broom, stuck the broom handle down one of the legs and shook it till it stayed open. Stuck it down the other leg, shook it. And then she stood the pants up in the floor and said, climb up on your bed, see if you can jump down in there. I got down in the blue jeans. Now I couldn't sit down. Every time I'd try to sit down, they'd just straighten back up again. While I was doing that, my mother was starching and ironing the new shirt. That shirt had a collar that felt like a knife blade going around your neck. I thought, whatever you do, don't turn your head fast. It'll be gone. (laughs) And then in the bottom of the bag, black and white saddle Oxfords. I put all that stuff on, and my mother said, you are so cute. Let's go to school. Now, I was going to a place called Hazelwood School, and it was only about a half mile from our house. My mother didn't even drive then. And so uh, we walked down to the school, and when we got there, there was a big sign in the yard that said, welcome first graders. You know, we didn't have kindergarten. First grade was the first thing. Report to the auditorium. Well, my mother and I went in this room, and it was the biggest place I'd ever been in in my life. There were about a 100 little first graders in there. There were about a 100 mamas in there. There might have been two daddies. And, and somebody was up there banging on the piano to try to cover up all the noise. And my mom and I got kind of in the middle toward the back, and all of a sudden, out on the stage came Mr. Leatherwood, the principal. The mothers got quiet. He had been the principal when they were in the first grade. They knew to be scared. Well, he started telling us everything he thought we needed to know about going to school. He told us about riding school buses. I thought, why are you tell us about riding school buses? Most of these kids rode one to get here. They must know how. He told us about paying lunch money. He told us about buying pencil and paper in the office. He told us about not chewing chewing gum at school. He told us about not sticking chewing gum on the bottom of a desk. I thought, how are you going to stick it on the bottom of a desk if you don't chew it at school? <laughs> All of a sudden, I thought, we got here on Tuesday. What day is it by now? I'd never heard anybody talk so long. All of a sudden, for the first time in my six year old life, I realized I was in a place in which I did not know where the bathroom was. And I needed to know, not theoretically. But right then. Now, there couldn't have been anything else to tell us. Mr. Leatherwood had told us everything that happened since the world was made, twice. But instead of letting us go, he came up to the edge of the stage, stuffed his pants again with his shirt, adjusted his belt, and he said, Now, boys and girls, before we go meet our teachers, I want to talk to you. Just for a few minutes about life. I thought it's all over now. And he started a whole new speech. It started like this. Boys and girls, life is made of two things. Winning and losing. I thought you're right about that. I'm about to do one of them right now. But it's not what you're thinking about. And then he went on to tell us the way he saw the world, you always had to lose before you got to win. And you always lost more times than you won. Now, I didn't hear the rest of the speech where he went on to tell all the little first grade kids, if you stick with it till you finally get to win, winning makes up for all the losing. I didn't hear that part. Because by then, I was losing. First, just a little bit. And then, just a little bit more. When pretty soon, you realize, because you can feel it, that, you know, if you've lost, you've lost. And besides, 10,000 times, I'd heard my mother say, Anything worth doing is worth doing right. I thought, okay, we'll just let it go. And I surrendered. I thought, I won't have to go for a week now. Now, everything might have been okay, except that the slick wooden floor of that old auditorium sloped from the back toward the front. And all down those little rows of kids, I could see little kids punching each other, picking their feet up. Who'd that come from? Who'd that come from? As the whole Mississippi River came down and started creating the Gulf of Mexico. I just knew Mr. Leatherwood was going to say, well, who did that come from? And organize a search party to send upstream. But right then he said, you may go to your classes. Well, we stood up. We were so packed in there that, you know, while we were still in the auditorium, we weren't far apart for anybody to see anything. And and on the way out to the hall, I discovered that all the visible evidence was behind me. So once we were in the hall, I got my back up against the wall, and I would just go sideways along. My mother said, why are you walking so funny? I like to walk like this. You could see everything coming and going at the same time. (laughs) We made it all the way to the door of Miss Ledbetter's room when it happened. Miss Ledbetter had the A's through the GR's. We did not have gifted children. We didn't have remedial children. We didn't have syndromes. We just had last names. It was Charlotte Abernathy through Lady Ruth Green. You know, smart, dumb, and everything else. (laughs) And I had made it to my assigned place. And I guess I got so excited about getting there, to get around the open door into the room, I turned too far. And right behind me, this little six-year-old girl. Ugly. And I hadn't even seen her yet. With a voice that would rattle windows from one end of the building to the other. All of a sudden went, Ah,
0: look, look, look. That little boy wet his pants.
1: And I thought I was going to die. The only thing I could think was, maybe She's not in my room, but her name was Carrie Boyd, and so she was. Well, once we were seated in alphabetical order, Carrie Boyd sat right beside me. We had two big blackboards, you know, real slate boards in that room, across the front, across the side. All year long, I learned every single thing that was ever written on that front blackboard. Have no idea what happened over there. I couldn't look that way. I thought if I look that way and she looks back, I'll drop dead. Well, we got along through the year, and finally we got to the end. School got out for the summer, and oh, I was so happy. I thought, oh, now I get to have a fresh start in the second grade. That will never happen to me again. Everybody will forget about it during the summer, and I can be all new, and it will all start over. Now, in the second grade, the same group of kids, A through GR. Nobody moved to town. Nobody went away. It was all the same, well, same ones. We moved right up to old, that was her first name, old Miss Lois Harold's room. That woman was profoundly old. She told us that she had taught second grade 188 years. And that was after she had taught all the other grades to find out where she really belonged. I mean, I mean she, she she was dehydrated. She lived on the outer fringes of absolute dehydration. The only thing that kept her on the face of the earth was a big old jug of Juergens lotion that she tried to rub into herself all the time, try to keep her wrinkles swelled up so they wouldn't catch in the wind and blow her away when the wind came through there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, you didn't get away with anything in her room. But we got along pretty well till we got to the spring of the year. And you know what happens sometimes when winter gets stuck and it won't leave? And, and the calendar says it ought to be springtime and it won't come. And it just hung up. And then all of a sudden, on one magical day, instantly, it's springtime. And if you're a kid, you go wild. We must have gone wild that day, because we got back in the room after lunch, and old Miss Lois Harold did a thing she almost never did. She closed the door. You know, teachers have catalogs from which they order things, and one of those catalogs is the teacher speech catalog. That's why they all make the same speeches. They got them out of the teacher's speech catalog. And on this day, she made speech number 312. You've heard it. Boys and girls, school is not out Yet. And then they fill in how many days and hours and minutes are left until the bell rings on the last day and tell you they know ten secret ways you can disappear from the face of the earth and your family will never remember they had you. (laughs) She made that whole speech and then she added a little bit more. She said, boys and girls, I am sick and tired of all this needless, pointless, unnecessary running back and forth to the bathroom. No more. From now until school's out, you go when you get here. You go at recess. You go at lunchtime. Or you wait till the bell rings. All year long, I had never once had to ask to go to the bathroom. I'd never needed to until she made that speech. (laughs) And as soon as she said, you can't go, a little voice way inside of me said, bet you can. (laughs) Today... I tried every way I could think of to get out of that room because, see, there was the clock on the wall with the big red hand that went around. And I thought, that red hand's going to have to go around 122 times before the bell rings. I'm not going to make it. I said, Miss Lewis, Miss Lewis, do you need anything taken to the office? No. Uh, Miss Lewis, you want me to go empty the trash can? It's running over. No. Miss Lewis, could I go beat the dust out of the array? No. I'm sick. Put your head down on your desk. Nobody was getting out of that room for anything. Well, I was bouncing around, bouncing around, trying to figure out what to do, what to do, what to do, when all of a sudden, I noticed something. During the summer between first and second grade, they had remodeled the school. They'd taken out the old desks, the kind that screwed down to the floor with a seat on the front of each one that went to the next one. They'd refinished the floors, and they'd brought in what they called blonde oak student chairs. You know, the kind with the writing arm on the side and sort of three left-handed ones in each room for the six left-handed kids. And and they had a little shelf underneath where you could put your books under there. and I remember one day in art in, in class how Bobby Jensen had knocked over a little jar of tempera paint. And he jumped up, but those seats were kind of scooped out shaped. And I thought that was to make them better to sit in. But that day I thought, no, that's so they'll hold stuff. Because all of Bobby's spilled tempera paint stayed right in the seat. I thought this will work. I'm not going to start an Amazon River flood. I'll just lose barely enough to make it to the bell rings. I'll wait till everybody's gone and I'll sneak out and no one will know. Good idea? Only idea there was. I held it absolutely as long as I could and then I lost just a little bit. And then I could make it 10 minutes. And then I lost a little bit more. And then I could make it 10 more minutes. I thought, this is going to work. This It's just going to be squirt 10 minutes, squirt 10 minutes, squirt 10 minutes, <laughs> right down to the bell rings. I made it till we only had five minutes to go when it happened. Carrie Boyd still sat right next to me. She was twice as ugly as she had been in the first grade. And this year, her voice would push the walls out on a brick building. And with only five minutes to go, all of a sudden, Carrie Boyd went,
0: Ah, look, look, look. There's something dripping out of your breeches leg.
1: <laughs> and this hand took over. It wasn't my brain. Your brain doesn't work that fast. It was my hand. It was just a free agent on its own. It decided to make a fist. And it made such a good one. It decided to take a trip. And all on its own, it just went pow, right smack in the middle of Carrie Boyd's second grade face. The whole room was dead silent. The next sound we heard was thunk when a big white bloody tooth landed on top of her desk. I don't know what happened after that. Miss Lewis Harrell had me up in the air dripping all the way to Mr. Leatherwood's office. He took me back in the back and gave me what he called a private talk. By the time I came out, somehow my mother knew about it, and she'd walked all the way to school to get me. And we walked home wet. I got all the way home, and my mother said, just go change your clothes and wait for your daddy to get home. Well, I did. I heard my dad's car come home. I didn't go out there. I thought, if he wants me, (laughs) he can come get me. He did. I said, just go ahead and spank me and get it over with. He said, I'm not going to spank you. I've got a better idea than that. Here's what you're going to do. He said, you're going to walk up to Carrie Boyd's house and talk to her parents. And you're going to tell them how very sorry you are that you knocked her tooth out. And I thought, I'm not going to do it because I am not sorry. I would have knocked them every one out if I'd had a second chance. But I knew I was going to do it. <laughs> well, Kerry Boyd lived about as far from us, maybe a half mile. It, it took me two hours to walk up there i go about 10 steps, I'd be tired, have to stop and rest a little bit, rest a little bit, go a little bit more. But then I gradually began to realize, if I don't get there and back before dinner time, my daddy's going to come and get me, and he will take me, and I don't want that. So get it over with. I started up to their house, my heart was just though you know thundering thundering my eyes were filling up with tears I was terrified and I went up the front steps up toward the door and I I started before I knocked the door opened and there stood both Mr. and Mrs. Boyd and I totally fell apart I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hit her. I didn't mean to knock her old tooth out. What? I'm as sorry as I can be. I won't ever do anything like that. I don't know what made me do it. What? (laughs) And they just stood there and watched and let me squall and be sorry and wipe, you know, till I was dried up. And then Mr. Boyd kind of looked at his wife, and he reached in his pocket and took out his billfold, and he opened it up and fished around. And he pulled out a $5 bill. He said, son, that was a baby tooth. It's been hanging there loose for a month. She wouldn't let either one of us get a hold of it. I am glad you got it out. And he gave me the $5. And that's what I remembered the end of that speech Mr. Leatherwood made on the first day of school about how when you finally get to win, it's so good. It makes up for all the losing. And all the way back home, I kept thinking, shoot, I'd wet my pants once a week if I could get $5 for you. I'll tell you a tiny bit more about Miss Lois Harold before our time runs out. Um, in those days, you know, teachers had paddles, and we got paddled at school. That was it. And Miss um, Lois Harold, Miss had the world's only electric paddle. That old lady, as old as she was, had a boyfriend, and she would cook supper for him every night, and they'd eat together. Then he'd go home, sleep where it was safe, and. Uh, <clears throat> uh, But he had made, he had invented her electric paddle. And, and, you know, looking back as an adult, I I know what he did. He had taken a piece like a poplar plank and he would sawed out the shape of a paddle. And he had painted it red with on one side this logo like what used to pop up when you're watching Batman. And then he had just drilled a hole in it, uh, glued a big electric wire up in there and put a plug on the other end. And she'd pick that thing up and, and the tail would uncurl and she'd say, I'm going to be merciful today. I'm going to use it by hand. But if you continue to misbehave, I will be forced to plug it in. And we'd hear stories from sixth graders about the year she had plugged it in. And some little kid had melted down into the ground without even leaving grease. <laughs> you know. Well, one day she got ready to paddle Tommy Connor. That could have been any day. And she had just put a big glob of Jergens lotion on her hands. And, and she started paddling. And when she got up to about 78 RPM, that Jergens lotion hadn't all absorbed. And the paddle squirted out of her hand. And it flew across and hit the window and the window shattered and the paddle, dragging its tail, went out the window and landed on the sidewalk. What we didn't know was Mr. Bowles, the superintendent, was just coming up to school to see Mr. Leatherwood, our principal. But about five minutes later, Miss Lois was called out. And we had an instant substitute. Haskell Davis, the janitor, who told us wonderful, wonderful stories about blood, boogers, and throw-up. It was great. Well, next day we got to school, and we were called into the auditorium, and, and Mr. Leatherwood explained to us that, that there, there was not going to be any more paddling at Hazelwood School. Paddling was over. Because there was a new thing that had been invented called getting suspended. And if you, if you were evil, because he knew we were evil, you were going to get suspended. There were two versions. There's what was called suspended in school. If you committed a misdemeanor, you went in a room with a teacher and all the children who were suspended in school, and you were all in there together. But if you committed a felony, oh, the felony list was bad. It was like fighting on the school bus. With the driver. (laughs) Uh, Stealing lunch money. Um, Calling a teacher what you'd already heard your parents call them. Oh. You know, you were going to be suspended flat out of school, flat out of school. You were going to be suspended. Well, we went back to our room and Miss Lois said to us, she said, did you children understand all of that? We said, Yes, ma'am, no more paddling. She said, Yes, but you're still evil. So you do understand that if you do something wrong, you will, and I expect it's going to happen to more children, you will be suspended. Are there any questions about that? Eddie Curtis raised his hand. We were already looking at Eddie. He was the one we could count on to ask what we wouldn't ask. We loved him. He said, Miss Lois, what does suspended mean? See, they would worn that word out for an hour, hadn't yet told us what they were talking about. Well, being a good second grade teacher, Miss Loss did not answer the question. No, you know what she said, don't you? Go look it up. Didn't you hate that? You don't know how to spell a word. Go, how are you going to look it up if you don't know how to spell it to start with? I remember spending half a day hung up between C and K trying to find ketchup in the dictionary. I haven't found it yet. Well, Eddie got up and he started over toward this big 35 pound new century maroon colored dictionary. She brought it home from the AMP store 12 months in a row in a big old section, bolted it together. And he started, he got over to S. And he kept going on the guide words. He got to S-U, going down the page, S-U-S. And all of a sudden, his eyes rolled back, and he hollered, No, Jesus, Joseph and Mary, they're going to hang us. If you're just a little bit bad, they're going to put you in a room with everybody that's a little bit bad and hang everybody in there with a teacher watching. And if you're a real bad, they're going to drag you out and hang you outside school all by yourself. No, 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 no. (laughs) Well, two days later, on the front page, bottom half of the Waynesville Mountaineer, six pages, two days a week, newspaper. The following headline appeared. It said 28 second graders petition school board to reestablish paddling (laughs) as their preferred form of punishment.